Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by John Roderick. He's a musician and a podcaster. He was the lead singer of The Long Winters and was a touring member of the band Harvey Danger. And what do you host, John? Like a thousand different podcasts right now? Uh, no, I'm, well, I'm not kidding. Well, not, not, not <laughs> anymore a thousand, but I do have, I do have three podcasts. Okay. I do uh, Roderick on the Line with Merlin Mann, which is my oldest show. Yes. I believe when and I met you, you were doing that show. That's right. And it's the quirkiest show, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then I do Omnibus with Ken Jennings. Now which Jeopardy is the, host. Now, now full-time superstar Jeopardy host. And that's probably my most like straight ahead mainstream, although it's still a quirk fest. There's nothing, you know, it would seem like, oh yeah, Ken Jennings, like Normcore, but he's a total weirdo and Mm -hmm. it's still a weird show. Mm -hmm. And then I have a show that's just on my Patreon where I I respond to viewer mail or rather listener mail. Mm -hmm. And that's very much like a after midnight kind of, I do a lot of ASMR you know, slow talking <laughs> type of replies to people's like basically sex letters. Right. Very nice. But, I mean, what what kind of questions are you being asked? Oh, I encourage people to ask me all kinds of things. You know, I like to be thrown into the fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I used to do that to myself. But then uh, it's fun to have people write letters where they're like, if you answer this, it's going to be a problem because people are going to send you angry, angry letters, no matter what you say. Mm-hmm. And I say, I'm the man for the job. <laughs> Very nice. You're not afraid of a little anger or a little controversy. I mean, these days, God, it's, it's everywhere, no matter where you turn. And, and I, I had, I kind of had to make the choice. Like I always wanted to be a, a, a public facing person. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to be part of the conversation as you, mm-hmm. if you choose radio or newspapers, you're making that choice. It's a life choice. Yeah. And to get scared away from it by people yelling, mm-hmm. I just felt like, uh, you know, there are so many different ways you can be a coward, but <laughs> that seems like a, like, why, why, why throw your whole life that you, that you dreamt of down the river just because dingalings are going to yell at you about it. I mean, That's fair. That's fair. Uh, we have the nicest audience in the world, so we hardly hear anything terrible from people. Oh, so. good. And I do, too. It's just when, you're, when your stuff gets thrown far and wide, That's when true. people that aren't your audience are, are still listening to you, like hate listening, which is a thing. Yeah. Weirdly, like, who has the time to hate listen to something? <laughs> like, don't you, aren't you busy? But apparently no, so. Well, today, we actually invited you on to talk about something totally different, perhaps, Yes. Maybe nobody's ever asked you about this. Well, to... but it might be super controversial anyway. We'll see. We'll find out. We'll see. Well, uh, but to talk about road trips. And originally, this was an idea I proposed to you five years ago or so prior to the pandemic. And I was thinking about it in the sense of, I guess, your musician background uh, of what makes a great road trip song was kind of oh. what I was contemplating at the time because I was in the car driving and a song came on that I particularly thought, well, this song has all the right qualities for a road trip. And then for some reason I thought of you and I said, I wonder what John thinks is the best road trip song, you know? Uh, And so I was like, well, maybe we could do a whole episode about road trip songs, but it was so long ago and I didn't tell you to prepare for that. So I thought we'd talk (laughs) mostly about the road trip itself. But if you do have an opinion about what makes a great road trip song, I'm here to hear it. Well, you know, I did a lot of, uh, as you say, band tours where you're in a van with with three to five other people. And, um, you know, a lot of bands have very clear, particular etiquette about the music that you're listening to in the van. My label mate, John Vanderslice, on his tours, their policy is no radio. Mm. Everybody's on headphones. So to be in that van and not have headphones on, you're basically with five people that all have headphones on, including the driver. No <laughs> one to talk to, nothing to do. You either put headphones on or you're just sort of staring out the window. Mm-hmm. A very lonely feeling, right, to be with five people all have headphones on. We did the other thing, which is that every band member took a turn DJ. And when we first were on tour, it was the very beginning of the iPod era. 
And so, you know, I had a lot of fun going through our individual music collections and, you know, because it's also kind of giving an education to people. And after a while, after 10,000 miles, you know, you're like, well, this is going to be a theme DJ <laughs> session where all my songs are going to be ones that I think were influenced by XTC or whatever. <laughs> and so what I learned in that is that there are great road trip songs and there are ones that are great headphone songs for sitting in your bedroom or going for a run that are really bad road trip songs. <laughs> so I have a tendency to really like kind of shoegaze, epic shoegaze, loud a very compressed wall of sound kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But on a road trip, that puts everybody to sleep or or it puts everybody into like a kind of crossed eyes. You can't concentrate anymore. It's too dreamy. Mm So I learned over the course of time, like, well, I'm just going to try it one more time with the Cure's Disintegration, and we're going to see how, and it's just like, nope, can't do it. I'm going to drive off the road. <laughs> so did you happen on anything that was, that you played where it was like, this is it? Everybody's energized on the bus. John's winning the day. God, I, <laughs> you know, it became such a, like, a sport almost. Because there's the other thing of like, do you recognize this band? Do you recognize this band? You know, because we're musicians, right? So we're, and I think our relationship to music is really different. I don't, I think if you're past the point that you've made a couple of records, you lose the ability to hear music in a naive way. You can't just hear a song and be transported by the song. You're always hearing the bass line as a separate thing. And so at least for me, some of that concentration, it's good for driving because it's kind of a, it's like, it takes a one side of your ADD away and you're over listening to the tambourine track while you're, while you're driving. So you have two things to do. It's like lighting a cigarette when you answer the phone. Mm -hmm. But like I, our relationship to music, it, it gets so complicated that I could never, I could never answer your question. Like what is a great road trip? So I could never, I, you know. <laughs> Having listened to 40,000 songs on the road, like I, I would never be able to narrow it down. It's interesting to me that you can't listen to music without sort of dissecting it, I guess is what you're saying a little bit. But you also don't, you say that you don't ever listen to podcasts. And I would think that if you were couldn't listen to music and just sort of let it wash over you, that maybe you'd want to have something that was more like a wash over you experience. But maybe you podcast too much to have podcasts be like that. Well, it, honestly, around the house, I don't listen to music either. I think it's a kind, I have a kind of attention that cannot do two things at once. As opposed to what I just said, which was driving and listening to music or lighting a cigarette and talking on the phone. Those seem to use different halves of the brain. But if I'm around the house I'm, and walking around thinking about something, how could I possibly also focus on the music as much as I would want or absolutely can't listen to podcasts i don't want to hear some other person talking because i've got whatever i have a parliament of voices already going on in my head so adding adding two more that i disagree with um in addition to the 14 in my head that i disagree with mm -hmm. it'd just be too much yes I, I understand so well okay you were saying we just ran into each other uh, a few days ago as we're taping this Right, we hadn't seen each other in a, in a while, although we used to see each other fairly regularly. We, yeah, we did. Uh, back when I was at the the NPR station locally all the time, I think we used to have you on fairly regularly, maybe we once did. a month, once every other month, something like that. That was one of your color commentators. That's right. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I move away, all sorts of stuff happens that everybody on the show already knows about. And then you and I kind of very infrequently cross each other's paths. And unfortunately, we came together this time because of a funeral of someone that we both know and like very much, um, yeah. which has made uh, the last few days we were saying of our email prior to this conversation a little bit existential because I, I definitely feel myself wandering around, talk about those voices in the head, like wandering around trying to work on things as if it matters, <laughs> you know? 
yeah. I guess is how, how uh, you know, how I've been feeling the last couple of days. But you were saying when we were there that you had just gotten back from a road trip. And so why don't you tell us what you've been up to? And then I have other I have other questions, of course. Well, road trips were always when I was growing up, they weren't some big part of our lives. My family didn't. We went on a couple of road trips, right, in my whole childhood. It wasn't part of our our culture. And we lived in Alaska, so there, you know, there's only two roads. There's the road that goes north and the road that goes south. Mm-hmm. And once you've driven them both, you can go back. <laughs> um, but but most of Alaska is about adventure. You know, it's about going to someplace you've never been. It's hardly ever a road trip. But when I left high school, I really believed in the road trip as part of the American experience. And I wanted to travel the world and in particular go on long road trips across America because it seemed to my 1986 teenage self something intrinsic to to being an American. And growing up in Alaska, you're definitely Americans, but you also feel like America is a kind of foreign country full of high school cheerleaders and football players and wheat fields, I guess, barns. <laughs> And I felt like, how am I ever, you know, how am I going to live without having seen like tobacco advertisements on the sides of barns and this type of thing? Mm-hmm. So I started road tripping immediately. I was still 17. I bought a one-way ticket to Seattle and I stuck out my thumb and was like, I'm going to hitchhike across America. And I did. And about halfway across the the country i i was sitting and watching freight trains go by and i was like wait a minute what's more american than jumping on a freight train <laughs> and so i went over and they're very easy to jump on when they're when they're stopped yep and i jumped on one and and this was still this was right before container shipping took over so there were still box cars i went across the country multiple times this way and then went through a period during the grunge years where i didn't you know i didn't have any money and didn't go anywhere but then the band took me back out on the road and we did 10 years of, of driving back and forth across the country. And now I'm kind of retired from that. I'm never going to get in the van with five people and drive across America to play Gabe's Oasis in Iowa city. Like if I play Gabe's Oasis, somebody's going to have to fly me in in a helicopter. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and that's not going to happen. Not for the $1,500 guarantee that you get there. (laughs) But now my family wants to road trip. My 90-year-old mother wants to see America from the car. So we drove a couple of years ago, two summers ago, we drove to Ohio across the the top of the country, Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota route. Mm -hmm. And then we came back the Kentucky, Missouri, Oklahoma, Colorado route. And we did the whole, you know, we did a, just a, a big circle. We did Moab. We did all of the, the sites in between. Visited old family origin place, old cemeteries that had our ancestors in them and just did the American thing. And my daughter is 12 and she's like totally not into it at all. Just teenage rolling her eyes at everything. Really wants to have her headphones on. Really, it, it, you know, she really wants to do the uh, National Lampoon's road trip version of being a teenage girl. (laughs) But we involve her and everything. So we just, the most recent one we did was we drove my mother and my daughter and I drove down the coast of Oregon through the Redwoods to Monterey Aquarium and then across the state to Palm Springs and then back up that inside road Mm -hmm. to Reno by Mount Whitney and then up to Klamath Falls, <laughs> nice. bend, and then over. So a West Coast loop, and the whole time, you know, and my mother's still very lucid. So just talking about whatever whatever you can find in common between a 90-year-old woman and a 12-year-old one, <laughs> we covered we covered all the bases. Wow. And how long, are, how long of days are you going? What's your approach? Are you driving for eight hours? Well, I think, again... A 90-year-old and a 12-year-old both both limit the number of hours you can really bite off in one section. Mm-hmm. And I'm all about being leisurely 
now. We got nowhere to be. The only thing that limits us is she has to be in school. But if there's two days off from school, we turn it into a five-day long, you know, long weekend. Mm -hmm. And you can see a lot in five days. We tried to maximize that time. And we recently did one around Washington where we went to every dry coolie and, you know, and pancake house in the state. (laughs) Yeah, that was another thing I was going to ask. So Derek and I did this kind of epically long seven-week road trip that we called oh. <laughs> that we called the Mooch Across America Tour because, and I've talked about it on the show some already, but we basically, when I, we were moving back from Rome after living there for a year, we didn't want to come straight home. So rather than come home, we flew into South Carolina. His father had a car he was getting rid of. We took that car and then proceeded to drive it for seven weeks almost completely off the freeways, only going through back roads and towns, but linked our way somehow across the United States, staying with people we knew every single night. I think we ended up staying in a hotel maybe twice the whole trip. That's brilliant. Which is why it was the Mooch Across America tour, because you were (laughs) staying with people. And as a result, we we got to see members of the family you know, far-flung members of the family that you hadn't seen in years, which was great. The only downside of it was that every single night you're essentially telling the same stories because everyone's like asks, oh, well, where have you been? How did it go? What are your plans now? And you're hearing their news, but it does get to that point where you're like, just tell me about you. I don't want to tell you about me. I don't care about me anymore at this point. (laughs) Just tell me anything else. And we did end up cutting the trip slightly shorter, I think, than we would have just because we did hit a point somewhere around Kansas City where we were like, maybe it's time to be done. You know, yeah. maybe it's uh, maybe the trip has been long enough. It doesn't have to be eight weeks or whatever, whatever plan we had. Well, Kansas City is also where the population density of the United States drops below three people per square mile. Mm so between Kansas City and Seattle, there really is a lot of open country. There is, uh, yes. Fewer people to visit. I do not recommend doing a back road tour of North Dakota. <laughs> uh, well, so I share your proclivity, and on our trip back to Ohio and then around, I also avoided the freeways the whole time. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, and you're right that in Montana, Wyoming, and North Dakota, South Dakota— you really are off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. You're giving yourself extra work to do for sure. <laughs> for sure. But it's phenomenal. I mean, there are, it's real Lewis and Clarky out there. Yeah. And it's beautiful. I mean, we discovered all the new oil fields and fracking that was happening <laughs> the in North ones, Dakota. Yeah. And we actually uh, encountered a town that was called Newtown because it was a brand new town. And it's just far, recently. Yes. Well, this was uh, 10 years ago now. So, uh-huh. but, mm-hmm. and I, I kid you not, John, I was probably the first woman to walk through Newtown and uh, <laughs> in, <laughs> I don't know, ever since its creation, I felt like, you uh-huh. know, an island of, you know, with a thousand hungry eyes, like looking at me as I went past because. So it was an oil town or a white separatist community? <laughs> yeah, oil I guess is... there are plenty of women in the white separatist <laughs> yeah, community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, but very interesting experience, a different way to see the United States. I mean, yeah, it's like visiting Edmonton, right? The, the, the male to female ratio is really skewed. Yeah, I know. I mean, it was kind of like seeing the dawn of a new place, you know, kind of what you imagine the Old West being like, you know, uh, where yeah. all the men come first and then the women follow once it's uh-huh. been established. Well, what, how do you guys, when you're with a 90 year old woman and a 12 year old, do you guys stop at roadside attractions? Is there anything that anyone, like if there was a giant walleye on the side of the road, would you all want to stop? Or is it more like the journey is the movement? What is your approach to sightseeing along the way, I guess? Well, all three, right? I mean, my mom is at the age where she says that, I mean, she wants to see the giant redwoods and she wants to see them as some kind of, you know, this is her life full circle. And she visited the giant redwoods, I guess, when she was 30 and again when she was 50 and now she's 90. And and the majesty and the awe and the grandeur of the redwoods has a 
resonates with her as a as an older woman. My daughter does not appreciate the grandeur or the majesty. She's not looking for awe. And so you put her into a, a stand of giant redwoods, and you know, you can't deny them. But she would not choose that as one of her adventures. She would choose any water slide that we saw. Mm-hmm. And she and she liked Babe the Blue Ox. Mm-hmm. You know, various things down the coast. Uh, and so we went to Monterey Aquarium in part as a gift to her. Like, we're going to spend all day here looking at dolphins. And I'm much more in that middle-aged kind of like, let's go to every lighthouse. Mm-hmm. Not because every lighthouse, you know, particularly resonates, but that setting some little goal like that, I'm going to visit every lighthouse on the West Coast, gives a kind of frame it takes you places you wouldn't otherwise go and it introduces just enough both order in the sense of giving you a mission and randomness because lighthouses are not on the highway. Mm -hmm. And so you're going down dirt roads, you're in places that you wouldn't otherwise see. And so that, that I feel like is very much something that I'm doing as a dad to introduce like, okay, now we have a mission. So you're looking at the map and you're telling me what to do next. But also having collected all these Pokemon, uh, we can now kind of claim to have accomplished something. It wasn't just a road trip from Pancake House to Pancake House. It also had these other elements. Do you have to rate the lighthouse, like to choose the one that was the best? I think that's part of the conversation. Which one did you like? Um, but I'm not a lighthouse r- r- uh, raider. <laughs> My impulse is to see each lighthouse as its own individual, you know, moment. Like, why is this lighthouse here? That's, I think, my thing. What When they built this, what were they trying to accomplish? How many ships are under those rocks that somehow didn't heed the lighthouse? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my daughter is, I don't know, this was something that I... I I tried to resist in raising her, asking her to rate everything. <laughs> like, which was your favorite? What was the best class? Like, who's your favorite friend? Because it just, it's its kind of an, it's almost, well, it's definitely a lazy way to start a conversation. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to get it in her head that every experience she had needed to be rated. And anytime there were four people there, she needed to pick one. <laughs> But I noticed it's really hard not to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, oh, yeah, I met four new people. Oh, well, who did you like the best? And so I don't actually do that myself. I don't say, oh, that was definitely my favorite lighthouse. <laughs> right. Why am I doing that to her? So I think we're still developing our road trip culture. She and I, mm-hmm. my mom and I, that's well established. But my daughter and I, we're still getting a language. Mm-hmm. Can we go all the way back to the road trip where you hitchhiked and took trains across the United States? Sure. When did you say you did that? In the 80s, 90s? 1986. 1986. So it's been a while. Since... It has. And, and then strangely, you don't think of 1986 as being any kind of transitional year in time. It just feels like some sort of bland mid-80s thing. But it was the year I graduated. And it turns out it really was. There was an, um, an America that you could only just see the last vestiges of. And by 1990, it was, it was gone. And so I think I knew even, at, I knew even then there aren't going to be hobos in 1992. Mm-hmm. But there are still in 1986. And I'm the youngest one that any of them have seen I'm the youngest guy that they've seen in 20 years. And, you know, and I looked like, to half of them, I looked like a, like a big sandwich. <laughs> um, so there was, there was absolutely an element of it where I, I felt that what I was looking for, barns with tobacco signs painted on them and, and an America of high school football and John Cougar Mellencamp videos, it actually was there. Just the, just this little bit of it before it became before the country became completely sort of balkanized between rural and city and all this it was an interesting time you really think that it changed in the 90s i would put it more like i don't know 
2000-ish. Well, I think a lot of it was that the interstate highways took a while to destroy the blue highways. Mm -hmm. Those little towns that you have to get off the interstate and go five miles to get to those towns. They still had a hardware store and a, a restaurant called Beth's and uh, these things. Like there was still a gas station in those towns because out at the interstate, there was most of the time not a Denny's yet and certainly not a truck stop yet. And by the 90s, there were. I mean, there weren't like there are now five hotels, truck stop on each corner, a Sherry's, a Denny's, a Chili's, a, you know, now I think most of the people that drive across the country never don't even realize there are towns around. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just continued till now. It's obscene. And all those towns are just tumbleweeds. But I think if every person that has, every person that gets to be my age thinks, when I was a kid, it was the last minute of the, <laughs> you know, my dad was like, well, when they, when airplanes stopped being biplanes, that was the end of the great air. And I'm like, yeah, I know, Dad. <laughs> well, biplanes. Is it weird for you, though, then to have a child who's 12 and to think, well, wow, she'll never, ever know that, that world. That world is gone. It is gone. I look at her and I think, well, she'll be the last, if it even makes it this far, she'll be the last generation that has a driver's license. And the last generation, presumably, that will get in a car, a self-piloting car powered by gasoline and have even really have the, the idea or the option of just driving aimlessly without punching anything into a dashboard without following, you know, well, just having the computer follow directions. If she even gets a driver's license, right? If she's got another six years or four years. I mean, obviously, we're not going to have that in four years. So, yeah, she'll have a driver's license. But will her children? No, not at all. So talk about a transition. She's going to say to her kids and her grandkids, we drove across, we drove across America in a, <laughs> in a truck. And they're going to be like, I know, I know, biplanes. He'll be like, your grandfather used to jump on trains. I know. And they're like, trains go 600 miles an hour. How, how could he jump on that? <laughs> so I do feel like, I mean, that's the thing. We're living in a time right now where everybody sees it's a transitional moment, but it seems really doom filled. Mm -hmm. Like, how could we possibly transition out of this into anything better? It's only going to, it can only get worse, but uh, that's, that's not true. It's going to transition into some some unforeseeable new way. And the very unforeseeableness of it is the is the gift. That's funny that you say that because I, I did go see a play recently that was called A Case for the Existence of God, which was a play that basically it's, I mean, it's a, it was about many things as plays are, but it was basically also about, you know, hey, Things are a little bit messed up, but maybe it's going to be okay. And uh -huh. and granted, they were pulling on some emotional heartstrings a little deeper than that. But you looked around the room when it was over and everyone is just in tears. <laughs> because uh -huh. I think there is a sense that you just want, you want that so much to be true right now. That everything is going to be okay. You know, that things keep changing, but maybe that's fine. And you can cry about it. And that's okay too. <laughs> it was very cathartic after uh, you know a few disappointing years of American theater in Seattle. I think it was uh, very yeah. cathartic for people to actually feel something in that theater that night. But yeah, so it, I like I like your explanation of how it is going to be okay. Well, nature seeks a balance, right? And but part of that is that nature's constantly out of balance in one sense or another. Things go this way. There now there are too many wolves. Now there are too many elk, and when there are too many wolves, I'm sure that the elk historians say this is the end times <laughs> and then the wolves, you know, can't sustain their population. And then all of a sudden there are a lot of elks and the elk historians are like, these are the glory years. <laughs> uh, and and to think that we're like outside of that system in any way, 
Mm-hmm. So we're in we're in a period of imbalance, but it's largely, I think, because we've been going through a period of great positive change for the last 60 years. And there's no way that you could say, oh, well, we're going to with the civil rights movement and with feminism and with gay rights movement and all the technology that we've brought online in the last 60 years, that that's not going to kind of upend and undo 150,000 years of human beings trying to figure out what the rules are. And we're just 50 years in, mm-hmm. right? We, and and it's it, it would be crazy for us to think like, oh, well, all of this positive stuff isn't going to also create an element of imbalance and chaos, and we're seeing it. But it's when we do come back into balance that it's going to be better. So, and I think it's already better, but it's like, it also feels a little bit unhinged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and then add to that the pandemic and all of us trying to come back oh, into yeah. the world again is oh, yeah. is the whole other can of worms. Well, um, well, maybe to just end, since we are talking about the road trip, do you remember any of the people or conversations that you had when you hitchhiked your way across America? Does anybody still stand out in your mind? Well, a lot of people, and, and I think it was, again, hitchhiking was still a kind of part of the fabric. When you would drive around, you would see hitchhikers and it wasn't crazy to pick them up. I remember getting picked up by a by a new mother. She had a six month old and pulled over and picked me up and I climbed in the car and I saw the baby and she was in her early twenties. I was a teenager. In the course of the beginning of the conversation I said don't you think it's a little crazy that you would pull over with a new baby and pick up like a dirty teenager in a jean jacket? Like, don't, doesn't that feel a little bit, I mean, I was like shocked and worried for her, I guess, even as my, as a wise 17 year old. (laughs) And she said, Oh, you look nice. I knew you were nice. And, you know, of course I thought to myself, how I didn't look nice. I'm a tough, (laughs) rough and tumble, but she was like, no, 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 you look nice. And another time in Vermont, I was picked up by a woman who said she had gone by me and thought about it and got off and went back the other way and then turned around and came back and picked me up. And she said, you remind me of my son. And as we're driving along, I said, well, I'm 17. And and she said, my son is 17. She said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just trying to see the world. And she said, you know, my son just sits around and smokes pot all day. I'm going to bring you home and you're going to stay with us and talk to my son and get, you know, get him to like, cause she was a boomer and she was like, you know, see America. She had it. She had this. And she was like, so disappointed that her son didn't have whatever this was. So I went back to their house and she introduces <laughs> me to her son and her son could not have been less thrilled yeah (laughs) than that her mom brought home this teenager who's like yeah i'm hitchhiking around and he's just like great you know (laughs) like and so i stayed with them for two days and she's giving me all this great food and and but she's sitting at the dinner table every night like encouraging me to tell stories and then looking hopefully at her son like doesn't that sound fun don't you want to and then she forced him to take me out and introduce me to his friends who were just a bunch of kids in Middlebury, Vermont, who just wanted to go smoke pot out by the gravel pit. And they couldn't have been more bored by me. You know, they they were like, <laughs> we don't want to be inspired by you, bro. Like, get out of here. Why were you going along with it? Because I was seeing America. Like, it just seemed like the most random, like, sure, I'll go home with you, lady. And, uh, but it was embarrassing, but it was also, it was also, I don't know, fun. Mm. Do you have any idea uh, the name of those people? We could look that guy up, see if he made anything of himself. No, and it wasn't Middlebury. It was Rutland. It was Rutland, Vermont. I mean, there's still that we could go put uh, we go put flyers on the phone poles. Did I stay with you? Nineteen eighty six. Forty years ago. <laughs> Your mom made you show me around. Yeah. A, a, a trucker pulled me put, picked me up one time, and he said, and as soon as he opened the door, he was like visibly disappointed, like crestfallen. Mm. 
and I, you know, I'm standing there like, because truckers hardly ever pick single guys up. And I was thrilled because, you know, trucker will take you miles and miles. And I, and I was like, oh, I, I'm sorry. You know, I felt like his disappointment right away. I was like, oh, I don't know what you thought I was, but, you know, please. And he was like, he shrugged and was like, all right, all right, get in. And we start driving. And he's like, I thought you were my brother. Aww. You look just like my brother. And I thought you were him. And you're in, you know, you're in a denim jacket and denim jeans. And I just thought you were him because he's in that prison right there. And we're <laughs> driving by some Midwestern maximum security barbed wire, you know, guard tower prison. He's in that prison. And I thought he had gotten out and was standing here. Hitchhike. Like I thought he had escaped in his prison blues. And I was like, wow, I'm not... <laughs> your brother but you know i can i can try like what do you want to talk about <laughs> well i think about him sometimes well no kidding that would be disappointing if you thought your brother had escaped from prison that would be imagine what he was preparing for <laughs> i know well his brother's probably 65 now i hope he's not still in prison although i don't he never said what his brother did so yeah wow i mean that it's an interesting point too is that most of your your drivers would have po probably puddle jumped you along it wouldn't have been yep. you know you're crossing three states in a day you'd have to get somebody who was willing to go past the next town right? yeah right and it, and that's how it was it was always somebody that very few people are like you know, I'm going on a four day drive and I'd like, I'd like some company. You don't usually find that. I mean, a couple of times a guy picked me up one time who traveled with his cat. He had a cat that lived in the car with him, drove all around America. Just the two of them, the cat, and the cat was completely domesticated to the car. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. He was great. The one time I tried to take my cat in the car, not in a carrier, it peed all over my lap. So yeah. that's the I took a cat in the car and <laughs> this was back when they had those vent windows. Oh yeah. And every anytime I left the cat in the car, he would find he'd figure out how to open the vent window and get out. Right. And then it's like, well, now I'm chasing this cat for 45 minutes. <laughs> oh, well, John, thanks for uh thanks for stopping by and talking about road trips. Is there anything planned? Is there anything on the on your horizons beyond, of course, podcasting multiple times a week? Well, now I've got this Oh, you mean outside of road tripping? Well, anything. Road trips I mean, or in life. Whatever you I'm, want to I'm, share. I'm, I think I'm going to start doing a monthly live show here in Seattle at the new Rabbit Box Theater. Cool. Um, that's going to be uh, some combination of interviews and, and music and, I don't know, tap dancing. Mm -hmm. And maybe maybe I'll have you on as a guest. Sure. I'll be there. If you want to come on and do... Uh, and do I don't know, movie reviews or whatever. Sure. I can strikes our fancy. Whatever you like. And I'll come as okay. an audience member too. Good. And I do have Good. a mostly unused pair of tap shoes I could wear just for fun. Okay. I... Yeah, that's more than I have. <laughs> I was gonna just put I was gonna, just gonna hammer tacks into the soles of, <laughs> of some boat shoes. I might have another pair you could borrow. I believe I have male and female tap shoes that are okay. currently on a box on a high shelf. So <laughs> we can break them out. That sounds fun. Well, but I, I but that. I do think about road trips all the time, and I think about what what is a good road trip for my mom that you know can kind of give her these enriched experiences, but that I all, will also require my daughter to join us absolutely against every one of her impulses, which is her impulses are to sit and watch Adventure Time on the television and <laughs> eat, eat raisins out of a bowl. And I'm like, that's, I mean, that's good. There's a lot to that. But also you're going to ride with your Nana and me and we're going to go see the top 10 volcanoes. Which arguably and, uh, is going to be more memorable in the long run. Yeah, arguably. Although, you know, maybe the memories are, God, my dad was frustrating. I mean, that was <laughs> one of the wonderful things about the funeral that we went to. Mm -hmm. Our friend was a beloved person. Yes. And, and one of the reasons that I, like you, was melancholy for the the next for the you know the last three days, is that I was walking around thinking, you know, at my funeral it'll just be a bunch of people roasting me. <laughs> they're all gonna be like, yeah, he was all right, but I've got a story about you know, and then they're gonna then it's gonna be some funny story about what a what a dork I was or a jerk, <laughs> somewhere between dork and jerk. Yeah, well, his funeral was sort of like a festival. It was like an it was. It, what was it? It was like an arts review 
It uh, was. It had a, um, I mean, he was an art- artistic director of Town Hall Seattle, which is a performance venue. Uh, his name was Ware Harmon. For those of you in Seattle, he, you know, and he was a person who loved art to his very soul and a man who was eager and willing to cry at things that he found beautiful, which also made him unique among men, I think. But he, uh, they basically put on a funeral that was a showcase of the different types of art that he loved. I mean, it swung from melancholy cello music played by a cellist that he poured tons of grant money into to forge his career uh, to, uh, you know, Mike McCready playing a raucous version of the American anthem. So, right. I mean, it was like the full swing with a second and line. Paul Giamatti reading a poem written by his father <laughs> yeah, about Paul baseball. G- and a great poem. <laughs> yeah, great Paul poem, Giamatti. great reading. I mean, another thing I another thing I respect about Ware and kind of something that we have in common is that he and I were never that impressed by celebrity, that we were just as interested in a person nobody had heard of as somebody everyone had heard of, and that I had worked with him for years and known him for decades longer than that, and that he never mentioned that he was very good friends with Paul Giamatti, like not even <laughs> once, like that he never even suggested, why don't we bring my friend Paul Giamatti on, and then we'll pair him with such and such a person for a conversation. You know, and here we are at his funeral and Paul Giamatti's weeping at the yeah. loss of a person that we loved. You know, it's just, yeah. uh, it was very strange. But it was also a, a reunion of types of people, far-flung people from every corner of your life. And I don't know, a real reflection on the fact that we were younger when we all met each other and we're older now. You know, it was just kind of a, a whole interesting event in that regard. It was, and I felt like there were so many articulate, erudite people who were also able to really speak from the heart. Mm-hmm. And you realize when you live a life in the arts, as you have, or you know, in, in where you're meeting people who really do perform across a wide variety of media, you realize you've met some incredible people that have these gifts, tremendous gifts, and they're not, even if you see them all the time, you know, living a normal life, your artistic gifts are not necessarily on display. You don't go to a baseball game and sit and wax poetical at one another. You sit and scream at the Mariners for being a bad baseball team. (laughs) And then, but then you have to recall like, oh, and also this person is an incredible playwright or they, you know, they are capable of really speaking from their emotional life. Mm-hmm. And to see that, to see 20 different people get up and give these eulogies reminded me like, oh, I just in the course of my of my weekly life, I don't really sit, sit anymore and read poems mm. because I'm just I'm a dad and I got stuff to do and I got to be here and I got to be there. All that stuff that we do when we're young, where we're just soaking in and it's all still in us all. Um, because if we had been asked, you and I, to get up and give a eulogy for where, we would have. Mm-hmm. We absolutely would have been able to do, you know, I could have got, done an extemporaneous 10 minutes on our experience with him. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, you know, I immediately, it redoubled that feeling that we need to stay in touch with each other and we need to stay in touch with each other, not just casually, but but be reminded that we're we're still capable of great work and we still are capable of appreciating one another's work. Yeah. And like they were saying at the very end of the night, I think you were still there, um, mm-hmm. where his brother got up and encouraged everyone to do, to live whatever they wanted to do now, because you never know, have the conversation you want to have with that friend now, I believe was his point. <laughs> he blew, he blew the room away, uh, at the very end. And, uh, you know, don't put it off because he had had a conversation he wanted to have with his brother that he put off and he had never Aww. gotten to have it. And at least that's what I caught while I was having a conversation with somebody else while he was yeah. talking. Cause it was in the after party and yes, it was a party, but I also think the result of all that was friends I've had that were there 
everybody was telling you that they loved you, you know, yeah. which yeah. I tell people I love them all the time. But I, you know, it was a few friends that had never told me that, you know, like yeah. as I was leaving, being like, I hope I see you soon and I love you. It's <laughs> uh, also the mood that was created by the event and by the loss of that person who right. definitely knew, I think, you know, we knew that it, our relationship was coming to an end before he died. Like it was obvious that it was going to happen sometime soon. And, you know, I think it was left in a good spot. But even still, that hole is so present. Like all the little yeah. holes from different people that we've lost are forever present, you know. In the I went to an art opening right after the funeral. And I was I was just kind of mopey walking around looking looking at the paintings kind of like hmm and the a friend who runs the gallery took me aside and we were having a conversation and at a certain point a young woman walked over he introduced us she's a artist and she said it's my 27th birthday today and we both wished her happy birthday and she said i don't know do you have any advice for a 27 year old and i said you know what I would say if you if you have a crush on somebody right now, if you like somebody that you're afraid to let them know, you should definitely let them know. You should definitely try to kiss the person that you wish <laughs> you could kiss. You should just make sure that you do that because at 27, you think you're risking everything, mm -hmm. but you're really not. Mm -hmm. There's almost no risk to expressing that crush to somebody. And the risk is actually that you don't and that you'll be my age. And what you remember is the people that you wish you had kissed. <laughs> and she was just like, that might be the thing I needed to hear most. And she kind of turned on her heel and walked off. And I was like, well, all right, <laughs> where you <laughs> threw through your funeral where I may have changed the life of this 27 year old uh, <laughs> because she, you know, marched out the door, I guess, on her way to go kiss somebody. Wow. That's amazing. All right, John, well, we should leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was my pleasure. And just let me say, I love you. Thank you for having me on your program. <laughs> I love you too. Thanks for taking the time. We were, I was feeling kind of listless, like I couldn't even get anything done today. And I said, too bad we're not talking today. And look, here you are. Because this yeah, is better right. than just wandering around my house in circles. So Me too. I appreciate that. All right. Well, and until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Talk to you soon. Bye. And I'm going to leave you with one more thing. When I first moved back to Seattle from Rome, I did a series of live shows in downtown Seattle, Pioneer Square, at a venue called Cafe Nordo. And John Roderick was one of my guests. And during that live show, he sang a song. And since we've talked a lot about him being a podcaster and not as much about him being a musician, I wanted to leave you with him singing. So you get an idea of both the sound of his voice and the sound of his singing voice. Take care. Talk to you next week. Want to play some music? I'll play a song. Yeah, uh, for those of you who have never heard a, uh, me play a song. I brought the ukulele because it's easier to carry. about the thing you don't really want to do.
about the thing you don't 